8 through chapter 6, verse 12. It can be found on pages 555 and 556 in the Bible on the rack in front of you. This is the word of the Lord. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? 
For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we open God's word. Father, um, we are admittedly perplexed at times by your word. And uh, we pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see and to hear and to receive what you have for us today. Uh, We pray that you would lead our worship around your word. Pray now that you would sanctify us through the proclamation and the receiving of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, There's a, a transcript of an actual radio a conversation between a U.S. Navy ship and Canadian authorities. I think it's happened um, off the coast of Newfoundland in uh, 1995. It goes something like this. The Canadians, they went first. They said, please divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. The Americans respond, recommend you divert your course 15 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. The Canadians fire back, negative. You have to divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. The Americans, obviously growing frustrated and quite proud, respond, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship, I say again, divert your course. The the Canadians not budging, nope, I say again, you divert yours. The pride and the frustration just grows in the Americans, and they respond again, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the U.S. Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change course 15 degrees north. I say again, that is one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians respond one final time, this is a lighthouse, it's your call. As one author said, well, it is one of the great delusions that the exertion of human power can change the shape of reality. Uh, Reality is a, a solid rock with a lighthouse standing on it, so to speak. And we can either, uh, and, and, and we can either alter course or take into account uh, what reality actually is. And if we don't alter course, then we're going to crash head on into reality. We can attempt to insist with the most authoritative voice and words that we can come up with that it should be different, but all the words in the world will not change what reality is, no matter what we say. Here's the reality that we're talking about today, the lighthouse, so to speak, the reality that our text hits at. Uh, In a nutshell, God has created man in his image to worship him, okay, to worship God and to love his neighbor. That's how the universe is. That's how God designed it. Sooner or later, we all come to terms with it. Uh, Things are not set up to finally allow man in the end to worship idols and exploit others. Okay, Things themselves are not designated. So material things themselves are not designated to be central. Only God is the thing before us today that is not designed to be central, but often we strive to make it central and it ends up being central. That thing is the accumulation of wealth. 
or the seemingly endless pursuit of money. If you're like me, uh, you don't like it when the Bible talks about money, try marinating in a sermon all week in a text all week that talks about money. Um, because we very seldom, I know I very seldom like what the Bible has to say about money. Money is certainly on the short list of things that we wish the Bible wasn't so opinionated about. But Lord willing, the, eye, the Lord's going to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to what he actually has to say today. Um, in the end, even though he has difficult things to say about money, we trust they are the best things that need to be said about money. They are what we need to learn about money. Um, as you uh, heard read just a moment ago, we're attempting to traverse uh, the majority of chapter five and all of chapter six in our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you are a guest, welcome. We are walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. That's a, our normal diet in God's word where we simply open a book of the Bible and go from beginning to end verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And this is where we fall today. We started in August. We're planning to go through uh, the end of uh, November, letting God drive the agenda in his word. So if something in this sermon, in this book sort of piques your interest, all the other sermons are on the website. You can find them uh, there. In terms of where we are today, we spent last week in the gathering, both uh, literally and physically. Uh, last week, the preacher, who is the author of the book, took us to church and helped us a bit on how to understand or how to approach worship. Uh, but God is clear that he doesn't just guide us in worship. He also guides us in the world. So as we leave the worship gathering, uh, God does not stay here. He goes with us. Uh, it's as if we were uh, prior to last week, prior to the first seven verses of chapter five. It's as if we were looking at the world and trying to figure out how do we navigate that. And then God said, all right, let's let's look at worship. OK, let's let's go to church, so to speak. And now we're going to leave and we're going to go look at the world again, which is a bit of a rhythm for the Christian life. OK, we 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 come in here, we worship, we leave, we go back out in the world, we come again. OK, so it's kind of a rhythm for us. A week in the world brings you back to a corporate encounter with God, which sends you back into the world. And what is crystal clear is that God wants us to know how to live wisely in what is often a perplexing, sometimes difficult, frequently harsh world. As we've said along the way, Ecclesiastes is not a book that ignores reality. Ecclesiastes seems to acknowledge with great sobriety what reality is like and how the world works and then gives us wisdom for how we navigate it. Okay, So it doesn't shy away from it. It looks at the world in sobriety and says, this is how it is, and now here's how you live. Today, we get wisdom regarding how to live in a world that is driven by money and the pursuit of it. There are no irrelevant topics in the Bible, but a conversation about money often has a heightened relevance to it, particularly in our context. Maybe it worked out well that... Half of the members are gone on fall break, so everybody just send them this sermon when they get back or after you get done. Just say, hey, don't want you to miss this. We talked about money today. So uh, with that said, here's how we're going to tackle this. Four sections today to help us frame this text. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you, and then I'll explain, explain them as we go, and they'll be on the screen as we go. So the first and fourth sections are primary. Okay, the first section, we're going to look at the hazards of wealth. That's where the majority of the text is, so we'll spend the majority of our time there. The fourth section is the joy of contentment. So those two are primary. 
uh, and really you've got the joy of contentment right in the middle of the text in verses 18 through 20 and in the hazards of wealth on each side of that. Okay, kind of bracketing that. It's called a chiasm, but really it's just bracketing a central truth, whereas the the chapter 6 just echoes what chapter 5 through 17 has already said. Okay, so it's kind of pushing the point home. Then sections two and three today, which are the certainty of death and the providence of God. Those are more like glasses or lenses, which we need to put on that will help us to see better. Okay, the hazards of wealth and the joy of contentment. Okay, it's death, certainty and God's providence that helps us to make sense of everything else in the text. Kind of the glasses we put on to help us to interpret the rest of it. Okay. Let's see if I can make sense of this uh, for us. All right. First and longest section, we'll spend most of our time here, so don't panic when you look up and go, we're still on point one. All right. We're going to get through this, and there's uh, some subpoints under this one. First, we see the hazards of wealth. The hazards of wealth. How, how many of you pay attention to the commercials that just seem to run continuously for the for the new medicine or the new drug that has come out for some common ailments or whatever it is. And every one of the commercials to me are exactly the same. I think they have the same marketing company making every one of them. You've got people, they're portrayed as you, you assume they have whatever the issue is. Sometimes there's something that indicates that they have whatever that issue is. But now they're living the good life. And they're living the good life because they got this medicine, because the company developed this medicine and now they are taking it. Okay? The message is the drug or what the medicine has altered their course of life in a good way. All right. And I don't know if you noticed that every one of those drugs have names that would make the just the most incredible spelling bee that you ever attended. Like I looked up some of them. I can't even pronounce them right. Incivivic, Adistris, Exjiva. OK, words you have no idea how to pronounce unless you're watching the commercial and they just keep saying it over and over. I have no idea. By the way, we're supposed to go tell our doctor that we want to entertain taking this medicine, but who know, I saw a commercial and it had some letters and that's it. But anyways, so how do all of those drug commercials that sound so awesome, how do every one of them end that just leaves you frightened? Side effects. It's apparently law. It's apparently kind of like the, the, the cigarette companies, tobacco companies have to tell you this will kill you at the end of the advertisement. They have to tell you things that, OK, your arthritis is going to be better, but you're, you may have heart failure. You may go into a coma and you may die along with a, a long list of other just really unsatisfactory side effects. OK, well, the world around us is a running commercial about the benefits of wealth. OK. We are advertised to death into believing that the accumulation of more money and therefore more stuff is where the good life exists. This section in Ecclesiastes is a bit like the side effects at the end of the commercial. Granted, this text has a much better aim and a much better ending uh, than the side effects, but it's, 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 it's a pretty strong warning label when it comes to wealth. It's a pretty strong warning label. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is just one text in a vast sea of texts that talk about money and wealth and the accumulation of it and the problems that come with money. See it? Deuteronomy 8, just to name one, when God warns his people that when they receive the material blessing that's going to come with the promised land, he warns them. He says, then your heart will become proud 
and you will forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands produce this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. You see uh, a lot of the same things said in Proverbs, where the writer aims at what I would call the sweet spot when it comes to money. So you ever want to know what is the sweet spot and you need a prayer? Proverbs 30, verse 8. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Basically, give me just what I need. Not too little, not too much. Jesus, okay, a lot of people go to Jesus. What does he say? He, he doesn't shy away from talking about money and wealth and the problems of it. Matthew six nineteen. do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth that can be destroyed, but lay up uh, for yourself treasures in heaven. Okay, let your treasure be there because wherever your treasure is there, your heart is also. Apostle Paul, so you just kind of keep going through scripture. He addresses wealth as well. First Timothy 6, 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. You you hear some echoes of Ecclesiastes here. and We cannot take anything out of the world. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. How do you think Paul feels about wealth or the accumulation thereof? And then Paul goes on to clarify the point. That resides behind all of these texts, all of these truths in the Bible. Paul hits at it for us. Verse 10 of 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay. It's the love part that's the issue. The love of money. Okay. That's the issue. Why? Because as Jesus said, one cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both money and God. Okay. You can't serve anything and God. You can just keep going, keep going throughout history. Okay, go past the Bible and throughout history and you just hear hear echoes of great saints throughout history. Just just saying the same exact thing. William Wilberforce said prosperity and luxury gradually extinguish sympathy and harden and debase the soul. John Wesley said wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. Charles Simeon, temporal prosperity is very unfavorable for spiritual development. Thomas Carlyle, for a hundred that can bear adversity, there is hardly one that can bear prosperity. Spurgeon called material prosperity a fiery trial. Voice after voice throughout history echoing the same thing. To be given much is not simply a blessing. It may also be the biggest test. So acknowledging this reality and not trying to deny it, not trying to shift reality with our so-called authority, how does this text do its part in pointing us to the hazards of wealth? Okay. You could probably go through the text. Okay, This would be sections uh, 8 through 16 or 8 through 17 in chapter 5 and then all of chapter 6. You could probably go through and come up with 8 to 10 distinct hazards that... Uh, this text points out, but I've tried to put it in five categories so that we didn't have ten points. I think everything would fall under these five categories. Not able to hit every detail. Okay, a lot of sort of complex sentences in here, but I don't think we need to get bogged down in some of that. I think the point, overall point, is is crystal clear. Even the language throws us off. So, I think five hazards pretty well capture the gist of what's being said here. Hazard number one: oppression. Hazard number one, oppression. Uh, this is verses eight and nine in chapter five. 
So uh, you could probably take verses eight and nine, do an entire sermon on uh, politics. OK, but we will save that that joy for another day. Uh, again, we're talking about hazards, things uh, about wealth that will harm that will harm us. But out of the gates, we see very quickly that wealth doesn't just have the potential to harm us. It has the potential to harm others through us. That's how the text starts. Basically, it's saying there are systemic issues caused by the pursuit of wealth. Not only is this a shocking statement, greedy people tend to hurt other people. And greedy people in powerful positions tend to hurt a lot of other people. And while wealthy people can certainly hurt other wealthy people, it's the poor that usually get the brunt of the abuse. Okay? Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched over by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So governments, leadership in countries, nations, tribes, whatever, are created in parts, ordained by God, for the protection of the vulnerable. Okay, the poor would be vulnerable. Okay, that's at least part of God's design in governmental leadership. But as history has proven, it's often the oppressed... And the poor that end up even more oppressed and even more poor as a result of the government. Why is this so? According to the context here, it's money. It's wealth. Money and wealth is the motive for so much political oppression. Money coupled with power. Okay? Money and power in politics make a, make for a bad recipe. Two things that are intimately connected. People, particularly leaders, tend to love both money and power. According to verse 8, it says, don't be amazed at this. Don't be surprised by this. And don't be surprised at how high officials look out for one another in their corruption. Anything about that sound similar? Sound familiar? Middle of verse 8, for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. Where money and power abound, so does corruption, injustice. Now, verse 9 here, it's a little bit difficult to understand. If you've got an NIV, it reads one way. If you've got an ESV, it reads a completely different way. Okay, Most of your Bibles probably have a number there at the end of the last word, at the end of fields. It takes you down to the bottom of the bottom of your Bible and it actually says this is difficult to interpret. This is hard to understand. I appreciate it when the Bible tells you this is a hard verse uh, to understand. Verse nine means one of two things doesn't change the overall meaning of the text either way you go. But I think the ESV translation points pretty clearly at what it means. Either on the other side of things, it's highlighting the oppression through stating a proverb. Meaning the king benefits off the cultivation of a, of a field of a land in any way to the exclusion of others. Or as it just plainly reads in the ESV, it's a, it's sort of an ironic sentence. Meaning don't be amazed at political oppression, but this is not the design. A good king is committed to cultivated fields, should be committed to cultivated fields, which is a benefit to everyone. So verse nine is meant to be I'm going to show you God's good design against the corruption that I just laid out leading up to that. Okay, So wealth coupled with power tends to harm others, particularly the most vulnerable, which government was designed to protect. So the first hazard is oppression. 
First hazard is oppression. And real quick, verses 8 and 9 are certainly, I think, more aimed at governmental leadership. But the truce here would be entirely applicable to companies, organizations, where the leaders who, in their pursuit of wealth and power, they harm those that are below them. Or they harm their customers. They harm their employees. Okay? So these truths would be applicable there. If you don't look out for the interest of the vulnerable. Next hazard, we see dissatisfaction. Uh, the bulk of the text would fall under this one, dissatisfaction. Uh, it's like the Rolling Stones song. Uh, not sure if the Stones ever read Ecclesiastes, but it sounds like they did. Or, or if you listen to the Rolling Stones, okay, just can't get no satisfaction, then if they never read Ecclesiastes, then it just sort of proves the point that Ecclesiastes is talking about reality. And the, the Stones were just looking at reality and they wrote a song. And it's just being backed up by that. So here's some of the uh, lyrics. Kids in the room, just imagine your great-grandparents trying to sing rock music. That's pretty much what the Stones are these days. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try. When I'm driving in my car, when a man come on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no satisfaction. Okay. Apparently Mick got tired of all the marketers and advertisers trying to tell him what else he needed. Talks in the next verse about turning on the TV and hearing the same thing. Well, the text before us may not be much older than the stones, but it's much more authoritative than the stones. So it's clear from this text, there is no ultimate satisfaction to be gained through wealth. It's made very plain. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. No theology degree needed on that one right there. You did not need me to study all week to help you with that one. Okay. All the hazards that come after this really just highlight why that verse, you know, just highlight that verse that money cannot satisfy. As one writer puts so well, if there's anything worse than the addiction that money brings, it's the emptiness that it leaves you with. One well-known researcher observed this. He says, wealth itself has only a small direct effect on happiness because it so effectively speeds up the hedonic, so the, the, the pleasure treadmill. As the level of wealth has doubled or tripled in the last 50 years in many industrialized nations, the level of, ha- excuse me, the levels of happiness and satisfaction with life that people report have not changed. So wealth has doubled and tripled, but research says, that satisfaction in life has not changed. And he goes on to say depression has actually become more common. Now, we can acknowledge just through common sense and reading the rest of the Bible, there's a certain level of what you might call necessary wealth, necessary money. You need enough to eat, to have shelter, be able to have the basics, the necessities of life. Okay, We're not aiming here, this text is not aiming at those that pursue the basic necessities. We're aiming at those that want more and more and more and more. And it's saying, be careful. There's a hole right there. Don't fall in it. Our text is highlighting the hazards of wealth and the dissatisfaction it can lead to. So let's keep it in context. When it comes to wealth, it's, it's kind of like the gift you, uh, you got as a kid on, on Christmas morning and it's, you know, you rip it open and it has that, that dreaded note that every unprepared parent hates to see. What is it? 
Batteries sold separately. Anybody ever been there? Got the great gift and you can't do anything with it because you know it's closed on Christmas. Every store. So you're not getting any batteries. When it comes to wealth, satisfaction is sold separately. History has proven that ultimate dissatisfaction, that ultimately dissatisfaction will come through wealth. People never seem to have enough, no matter how much they get. And it doesn't provide what they were hoping for. Rockefeller, I don't know why he's always used as most people, you know, everybody that's younger in the room has no idea who Rockefeller is. But just say he was a really rich guy a while back. He was asked at one point in his life, which was your favorite million to make? It'd probably be billion in our day. To which he replied, my next one. At another point, after he had made his millions, he also said this. I would give all that I have now if I could experience the contentment and satisfaction in the days when I was making three dollars a week. Kind of tells you how old that quote is. Psychological researchers have amassed an impressive body of data that helps to prove that satisfaction is simply not for sale. It can't be bought. Certain research concludes that those who want to be famous and rich as well as attractive do not fare as well, psychologically speaking, as those who attempt to develop close relationships, be responsible and contribute to community. Translation, the simple life has proven to be better. In chapter six, the preacher uses a somewhat shocking illustration to make his point here. Starting in verse six of chapter six, he paints a picture of someone who has it all. Okay, the reference there to fathering a hundred children, living a long life. That point to someone who has it. They have, they have wealth. They've been blessed. All of those are signs of blessing. A lot of children, land, long life. You've been blessed. But you see, it says his soul is not satisfied with the good things that he has. And the preacher go, keeps going and says that a stillborn child is better off than this man. And the preacher's intention there is in no way to be insensitive in the use of his comparison, but be, he, he's being provocative in helping us to see the emptiness of wealth. Even though the stillborn child never truly experiences life, it finds rest, as the text says. It's better off than he because it finds rest. Someone who has amassed wealth without satisfaction never finds rest. For all of his wealth, he possesses no contentment. Zach Eswine, who wrote a book on Ecclesiastes, he says, Restless and unfamiliar with true joy, the wealthy neighbor is impoverished. The stillborn child possesses the riches of rest and provision with God that the wealthy neighbor knows nothing of. The acquisition of wealth, when set as an ultimate goal, is a never-ending, ultimately unsatisfying task. The goal can never be reached. Okay, One milestone leads to another milestone. One summit leads to, to seeing that there's just a much higher summit beyond that. In fact, okay, the accumulation of wealth or the pursuit of it, you think that you're scaling mountains when actually you're just reading, you're, you're running on a treadmill that's speeding up. You know, we got the treadmills nowadays that'll speed up and incline. That's that's all you're doing. You're not going anywhere. You think you are, but it it's like that screen at the gyms now. It's right in front of you, running on the treadmill, but you think you're like in Nepal or wherever, or in Colorado, running on a trail. 
Next hazard. Oppression, dissatisfaction. Next we see inflation, which hesitated to use that sore subject right now. Uh, I'm not necessarily talking about what's been plaguing us for the last year-ish or however long it's been. I'm talking about the natural inflation in cost that comes with the accumulation of wealth. So anybody in here remember their first paycheck? Like what you felt, what like what what it was, what it looked like. Your first like real paycheck though. I'm not talking about maybe that first summer as a 12-year-old or 14-year-old or however old you were and what was legal at that point. But like first like serious uh, paycheck. I remember right, right after college, okay, I was amazed. I was floored by the amount. I'd worked in high school, I'd worked in college, but never really had a paycheck that amounted to anything. And given how my college career ended or my undergraduate career ended, I was broke, like I was I was broke. My dad was very gracious to help me in those final few months to get through that time. So here I was. I was graduated paycheck in hand. Good life. Right. Good life. Then I bought a house. Okay, Which came with bills and expenses. Uh, Then inflation hit me dramatically. I got married. Okay, it's like hyperdrive inflation. New car. Do a little work on the house. Buy new furniture for the house. Uh, next thing you know, inflation goes from a dramatic increase to skyrocketing. You start having kids. Okay, got three of those now. All right, just inflation just keeps going up. There are at least two truths I can affirm as I stand here at 40 years old. Okay, income normally increases. That's how it normally works. Sometimes it doesn't, but it typically does. But what is equally true is your expenses also increase. Some of it's self-inflicted. Some of it's just the way things are. Okay, okay. Things start to cost more. You have to have more. Just let me introduce you to insurance. You know, something along those lines. And you have verse eleven. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. Okay. That verse, I think, could be broadly applied to what I'm talking about, general inflation and expenses that come with having more wealth. A bigger house has bigger bills, more cars, more insurance, so on and so forth. So I think this is applicable to the general inflation of expenses, but there's something more specific here. You might call them moochers, okay, freeloaders, whatever your best word is there. You get rich, suddenly you have friends you didn't have before, family coming out of the woodworks that's being nice to you. I'm doubtful that's like highly relevant uh, in this room, but the text certainly uh, highlights it. I think for us, just acknowledging that with more money, you need more money. Does that make sense? With more money, you need more money. Greater wealth involves the hazard of greater expenses. Some of those by necessity, some of those by choice. As the end of verse 11 implies, all you do is get to watch it go. All you do is get to watch it go. Next hazard, we see restlessness. Restlessness. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Uh, The preacher is making an astute point here. Affluence can actually damage your health. Affluence can actually damage your health. The text is... Not implying that the simple laborer is stress-free, but there is something to be said for manual labor, which wears out your body, which causes you to sleep. The wealthy are often uh, engulfed in the pursuit of more and therefore restless, but they also insatiate themselves, all right, which causes physical problems and they're unable to sleep. 
So there's a mental and physical side to restlessness here that comes with wealth. I think Derek Kidner made a great observation. He looked at what he called, he called them our modern exercise machines and health clubs. And he concludes this. It is one of our human absurdities that we pour money and effort just to undo the damage that money causes. We pour money and effort into undoing the damage that money itself causes. Or someone else said, affluence plus indulgence equals sleeplessness. Welcome to the American dream. Text gets even more depressing on this point. Verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Not exactly the good life. It's hard to find evidence that a preoccupation with money equals a happy life. It's hard to find evidence of that. Jewel Whitaker, the wife of one of the largest single ticket lottery winners at the time that she said this, she said, I wish all of this would have never happened. I wish I would have torn up the ticket. Wealth promises power, but delivers slavery. It promises happiness, but delivers anxiety. Three sets of studies published in leading psychological journals since the 1990s and I'm sure have been updated many times since. The research sketches an increasingly bleak portrait of people who value extraneous goals like money, fame, and beauty. Such people, it says, are not only more depressed, but also report more behavioral problems as well as physical discomfort in life. They also score lower on all measures of vitality and self-actualization. We could have spared years, decades of research to these researchers if we would have just handed them a Bible. But, again, it's good to see when somebody goes out and finds that this truth accords with reality. Often more money does not mean more rest. Last hazard, so oppression, dissatisfaction, inflation, restlessness, and finally uncertainty. Uncertainty. Verses 13 through 14, to paraphrase it, even if you try and hoard your wealth, it can still be lost on a bad venture. Even if you try and hoard your wealth, it can still be lost on a bad venture. Certainly, uh, you can make poor investment choices. Some of you can probably attest to that, made poor investment choices. But to a certain extent, there's a level of uncertainty, no matter how cautious or conservative you are with your money. Anybody heard of the, did you hear about the GameStop craze over the past couple of years? Can't remember exactly when that started. So GameStop stock. Really just through, we'll call it social media, online forums. There was just a lot of chatter that fueled a, a spike in GameStop stock that was, that it was, it was phantom. There was no, no basis behind it. It was just people saying, buy and it's going to be worth this or whatever. And tons of people jumped on board and the price skyrocketed and some of them, Some of them jumped on the train and off the train at the right time, made a ton of money. Others, they jumped on the train at the wrong time or attempted to and fell on the tracks and the train ran them over. In an instant, seemingly, they lost everything. All it takes is a global pandemic, a world war, or just some idiot with power, a natural disaster, and all that you have worked so hard for to amass is suddenly gone. 
And the uncertainty of wealth gets even more certain here, according to the preacher. Verse 15, as he come, as he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toll that he may carry away in his hand. Verse 16 kind of sums it up. Just as he came, so shall he go. So how'd you come into the world? Every one of you. Naked with nothing. If you had something, something your parents gave you, okay? Your parents may have had something, but you had nothing. How are you going to leave this world? Not necessarily naked, but with nothing, okay? You're going to leave with nothing. Any Monopoly fans in here? Anybody like Monopoly? One one person likes Monopoly. Okay, it's really it's dour state. There we go. Four people like Monopoly. We have to be careful in our house about playing Monopoly. Okay, my wife, unlike other people, okay, doesn't like to lose. But um, what happens even when you dominate at Monopoly? What happens at the end even when you dominate? You may get to brag, but everything goes back in the box and gets put up. All the money, all the properties, in the end, you've got it all. You own everything and it just has to go right back in the box, slide it back on the shelf. Not one thing that you acquire goes with you. That's life and death. Here's a question for you to contemplate. How many dead billionaires are there? None. None. There's no such thing as a dead billionaire. Could They could certainly be like the pharaohs of Egypt that get buried with all their stuff, but that stuff just sits there. Doesn't go anywhere. They're dead. They no longer possess it. It all just goes back in the box. This leads to our next section. So those are the hazards of wealth, which which our view of them is dramatically affected by this next section. Next, we see the certainty of death. Okay, not going to spend much time here. This is the point that's been made since the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes will continue to be made. The reality of death affects the way we walk through life. Here, the certainty of death affects the way we view wealth. So I'm really just stating the same thing that I just said in the last hazard. The uncertainty of wealth is made clear by the certainty of death. Okay, If the stock market and the volatility of it doesn't make you uncertain about wealth, let death make you uncertain about it because you can't take it with you. The end of our lives provides a proper explanation for everything that happens in our lives. As David Gitson says, it's the destination that makes sense of the journey. If we know for sure where we are headed, we can know better how to live before we get there. Ecclesiastes invites us to let the end mold and shape our priorities and goals and ambitions and desires. If we won't live forever, this would be the point of the book. If we won't live forever, then how should we live? I think that's the question that the book seeks to answer. And part of the answer from this chapter is don't live as if money will ultimately satisfy and you can take it with you. Living as if money has some certainty is in is in a way denying what is certain, which is death. Acknowledging death is not meant to depress us. It's meant to reorient us or correctly orient us. Death is like the trump card in the argument For the satisfaction that we think money can buy. Death is like the trump card in that argument. Well, I can be satisfied with money and all you got to do is say you're going to die. And it's not going with you. 
We need death as a lens through which we properly view money. We also need another lens. The certainty of death is not the only thing that provides a right perspective on wealth. We also need the providence of God. Okay, there are a couple of moments uh, in the text where we see God's providence or his sovereignty pointed to. Okay, his good governance of things. Meaning that in order to understand wealth, okay, and come to terms with what we may have or what we may not have or why we have it, in order to find out how we can enjoy it, in order to get to that place, you have to recognize God's providence. Okay, we see it highlighted in a couple spots. End of verse 18. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toils which one toils under the sun the few days of his life. And here's the part I'm pointing at, that God has given him, for this is his lot. The end of verse 19 says that God has given wealth and power to enjoy it as a gift. He's given wealth, not wealth and power. He's given wealth and the power to enjoy wealth is what that is saying. So it all comes from him. The gifts and the power to enjoy the gifts all come from God. Then you fast forward to the end of chapter eight and you get, I mean, chapter six, and you get uh, some somewhat confusing verses that point to similar truths, but just in different ways. So at the end of chapter six, uh, which ties in with with chapter seven. So we'll kind of get some more on this next week. We'll see how that goes. But verse 10 in chapter six talks about whatever, whatever has come to be has already been named. Okay, I think that right there is pointing us back to Genesis and to God's creation and the fact that he created it and called it what it is. So God ordered it and he named it. All right. And then it says he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he, seemingly an allusion to trying to dispute with God over the way things are. You cannot dispute. God ordered things. He named them. And you cannot dispute with one that's stronger than you. He put it in place. And it just goes on to say that it's vain to try to explain it this way. Man can't explain all this and get a full grasp of it. Man doesn't have the mind of God. So it's just vanity. It's just words and vanity trying to do that. So here's the deal in a nutshell. God is both sovereign and good. Okay, that's the clear testimony of Scripture. In order to avoid the hazards of wealth, know how to approach wealth, be content with what you have. These truths are needed. God's providence is a a lens, an essential lens that we have to have to shape our perspective on the material possessions That we have. Okay. God has given us what he knows is best for us. So in that sense, heed the words of Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and and let let the Lord work out the rest. Go after him first. Let him work out the rest. This is what I'm trying to get at. You, You can't just look at wealth. You can't just look at wealth and you can't even look just at truths about it. And simply try to figure it out and how to understand it and approach it and, and what do you do with it. Okay, you, you have to look at truth about wealth, but you also need to look at death and you need to look at God. And let each of them help you to understand what to do with what is said about wealth. Okay, death tells you wealth is not ultimate because it all goes back in the box. And God tells you he's in control And he can be trusted and he's good. He's a good father who gives good gifts according to the New Testament. And he tells you more specifically that it's only by his grace that you can enjoy what he's given you. 
You need those two perspectives that you can't take it with you and it's all from God and you need him and his grace to help you to enjoy it, which leads to the last section. Finally, we see the joy of contentment, the joy of contentment. It's another one of those carpe diem texts there in verses 18 through 20. Read it again. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So real simple, Q&A time here. Who gives wealth? There we go. Yes, you could say Jesus, it'd be right. All right, all right. And, and then here's the key that we see throughout Ecclesiastes. Who gives the ability to enjoy what God gives? God, there we go. Just want to make sure we're driving it home here. God God and the enjoyment of the, I mean, gifts and the enjoyment of them both come from God. Okay. Okay. To the, to the point the text calls it just, I mean, it's a, it's a heinous thing that a man would be given things and he can't enjoy them, but this is his lot as well. He's talking about those with the, the abundance of wealth and all the pitfalls that that can bring. And his conclusion is this. It is a good and fitting thing to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment. Okay? So, the preacher is aiming the text at those who are just pursuing wealth, throwing all of life into the pursuit of wealth, and then this is his conclusion in the middle. Eat and drink and find enjoyment. That sounds to me a lot like the simple life not the extravagant life. You know, we tend to play, I think I said this in one of the earlier Ecclesiastes sermon, we tend to play the if-then game. Okay? If you give me this, then I'd be happy. Okay? If you do this, then I'd be this or whatever. Just fill in the blank about whatever it is that will bring happiness or peace or rest. If you'll, if this happens, then I'll finally do this. Okay? We do that all the time. However, okay, science has proven the game is fictional. It doesn't really work. Seriously. Okay, not making this up. I know that sounds funny, but it's really not. Harvard psychologist. Okay, I've got his name. You don't know who he is. I don't know who he is either. But just he went to Harvard. He's a psychologist, so he's smart. But he put it this way. A lot of research. The if-then perspective cannot be supported by science because each time our brain experiences a success, it moves the goalpost of what success looks like. If you get good grades, then you have to get better grades. If you have a good job, then you have to get a better job. If you hit a sales target, you raise the target. If you buy a home, you want a better one. And he goes on and on and on. The preacher steps in and says, don't predict that you'll be happy if something changes or if something happens. The preacher steps in and says, wake up every day and enjoy the very things that you have. Wake up. Every day and enjoy the very things that you have. As one writer says, we don't have to be rich to find something to enjoy every day. And the preacher would even say this, wake up every day 
enjoy what you have, even in the midst of life's troubles. Because he never, he never discounts, never plays down how hard life truly is. Okay. The aim here is contentment with what we do have, not longing for what we don't. That is the, the case that the preacher continues to build on. Okay. Today, he's primarily continued to build on that case. Okay. Through, through aiming at telling us about some hazards of wealth. But he's not failed to point to the joys that are available in the simple things. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm envious, hopefully in a good way. Hopefully you can be envious in a good way of verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. With joy in his heart. God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Who in here doesn't want verse 20 to be a description of your life? Who in here doesn't want to affirm that your desire is, is this? I, I want to be occupied with joy. Well, if that's a desire that's good for you, good news, good news here. This joy is available to all of us. It's available to all of us. You know, I, the more I read Ecclesiastes, it seems like it's, it's, a, it's a safe that we just can't find the key to unlock. It's like, I, I, I get what it's saying. I see this. I love the perspective of the book and the honesty of the book, but I struggle with how to apply the book. Well, fortunately, we do have the key or we know who the key is. And it should not surprise us. The key that unlocks the joy that God gives is Jesus Christ. It all gets to Jesus. We've, we've joked about the Sunday school answer, but it, he is the answer. He's the key that unlocks the joy that's being talked about here. The joy, the contentment being portrayed here is unavailable apart from Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus. Think about it. You stand opposed to God, not in line to receive the gifts of God. Apart from Jesus, you stand opposed to God, not in line to receive the gifts of God. Jesus is the only one that brings you back into right standing with God so that verses 18 through 20 are even possible. So we deserve death for disobeying God. Christ provides joy by perfectly obeying God. We deserve condemnation for idolizing wealth. Christ provides forgiveness so that we can rightly receive God's gifts. I know that certain people, even certain people I know that think that Christianity promotes some sort of drudgery. It's just a miserable life. It's a denial of fun. And Christians don't do anything. According to Ecclesiastes, understood in the context of redemptive history, those in Christ will not even remember the days of their lives because he keeps them occupied with joy. If that's drudgery, sign me up. All right, we, we need to land the plane for today. So hopefully more next week. We invite you to come back. Just pick up right where we left off. For believers in the room, uh, as, as has been the case throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, hopefully it's a corrective. It's a perspective adjuster where, where it kind of gets you back on course to like, how should I view things in this life? How should I approach this life? We don't need to let our approach to wealth rob our joy in God. For the unbeliever, thanks for listening. I'm always here should you have any questions regarding what does it look like to, to get your hands on this type of joy. Okay, Where you don't even remember the days of your life because you were occupied with the joy that God gives. Okay, Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, which is a guide to us, which 
as we just said, is, is, is it reorients our perspective and our thinking and our approach to life. So we pray that it would be lodged deep in our minds and in our hearts and uh, would, in a sense, put a rock in our shoes as we leave here, that we, we, we can't. We can't flee from these truths which may be difficult, but are in the end good. For the believer in Christ, there is no difficult text that doesn't end well. They all end well. And so sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.